Well, hello, hello, and greetings. Welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. My name is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the editor-in-chief of iFormerX and, and the host of the iFormerX podcast. And if you are not already a member of our community of practice, please sign up today. It's free for healthcare professionals as well as students, residents, and fellows enrolled in health professional education and training programs. Now, in today's episode, we'll be talking about a liver disease that is largely the result of lifestyle behaviors. And while we all know about the potential damage to our livers from chronic and excessive alcohol consumption, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and steatohepatitis are increasingly common and increase the risk of hepatocarcinoma as well as liver failure requiring liver transplantation. And I don't know about you, but we didn't talk very much about non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH when I was in pharmacy school. In fact, I don't recall discussing this disease at all until I started practicing in an interprofessional diabetes management clinic. I think the lack of awareness about NASH is in large part because we don't have a specific screening tests and we don't have an effective or at least FDA approved treatments yet. But as the prevalence of NASH and fatty liver disease has increased, so has the interest in developing methods for screening and, and treating the disorder. The peroxisome proliferator activator receptor agonists, or PPAR agonists, have been the most commonly studied for their potential to treat NASH and fatty liver disease. And the effectiveness of the PAN-PAR agonist lanfibrinor was evaluated in the NATIVE study, which was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine in October of 2021. Since this is an evolving area of practice that ambulatory care practitioners need to be more informed about, I invited my colleague, Scott Melanowski from the University of Mississippi to write a commentary about this article and record this podcast. Now, Scott has a keen interest in liver disease and how liver disease impacts drug metabolism and drug action. Scott previously published a review article in the Journal of Pharmacotherapy about some of the initial treatment studies for NASH and fatty liver disease, and he's frequently invited to speak about liver disease. So, Scott, it's such a pleasure to have you on the iFormerX podcast today. Welcome. Well, thank you, Stuart. I appreciate the invitation. It's great to be here. So, Scott, before we talk about the study that you reviewed in your commentary, I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a broad overview of fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. How common is it? What are the primary causes and who's most at risk? And should we screen for it? If so, how? And are there any effective treatments for NASH? Uh, let's start with some definitions. First of all, there's two types of fatty liver disease, that which is associated with excessive alcohol intake, which we typically see in patients with alcohol use disorder, and the other type being unrelated to alcohol consumption, hence the name non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD. What makes the non-alcoholic version a challenge is the fact that its cause is multifactorial and its onset is slow, insidious, and typically without symptoms. So although the two types are histologically similar, they really are two very different illnesses. Now, NAFLD is typically defined as more than 5% of the liver mass being fat, more specifically triglycerides. 
Although the liver parenchyma is a normal storage site for triglycerides, when that amount exceeds 5% of the liver, this is considered abnormal, a disorder known as hepatic steatosis or fatty liver. At this point, it's called simple steatosis. Although there is an abnormal accumulation of fat in the liver, it's usually not pathologic. The patient's usually asymptomatic and the condition is self-limiting and reversible. It's suspected that most patients with NAFLD persist at this stage for years, largely undiagnosed. Even though that might not sound so bad, the problem is that NAFLD is a progressive disorder, and about 20% of patients with simple steatosis will go on to develop an inflammatory component. And this condition is called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH, or NASH as we call it. This is much more serious as it involves hepatocyte ballooning or other injury and is associated with liver fibrosis and increased morbidity and mortality, largely due to subsequent cirrhosis, which is irreversible scarring. This in turn can eventually lead to end-stage liver disease, the need for liver transplant, as well as increased risk of hepatocellular carcinoma. So what causes NAFLD in the first place? Well. It seems to be a combination of risk factors. Like you mentioned earlier, Stuart, lifestyle behavior is a big one. Sedentary or inactive lifestyle and being overweight or obese are strongly associated with developing NAFLD. These patients also tend to have insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes, not to mention dyslipidemia and hypertension. And if that's starting to sound like metabolic syndrome, that's because that's exactly what this is. In fact, some are calling it MAFLD for metabolic-associated fatty liver disease. It makes a lot of sense. And obviously, there's a strong correlation between these risk factors and cardiovascular disease. Tying this together with a large number of people affected by NAFLD should give the ambulatory practitioner pause. And what's worse, the prevalence of NAFLD appears to be increasing, with current global estimates indicating that about 25% of the world's adult population has some degree of fatty liver, at least simple steatosis. A few other interesting, even alarming, epidemiological estimates to consider. NAFLD is present in about 80 to 90% of obese adults. It's found in 30 to 50% of patients with diabetes and up to 90% of people with hyperlipidemia. So that's a lot of our ambulatory care patients, all of whom are at risk for developing NASH and its host of complications. Hopefully by now you can start to see how important it is to identify patients with NAFLD and or NASH, mainly because like so many other diseases, if we can catch it early enough, we can stop it from progressing or even reverse it which should translate into fewer hepatic and cardiovascular events. So how do we identify patients with a disorder that is largely without symptoms? Screening, of course. This starts with being on the lookout for patients with the characteristic risk factors, those being the components of the metabolic syndrome. More specifically, patients with type 2 diabetes, two or more metabolic risk factors, or incidental steatosis or elevated transaminases. From this cohort, the next step is to identify patients at risk for clinically significant fibrosis, which is defined as fibrosis stage two or higher. And this doesn't necessarily require a liver biopsy. It can be performed in a non-invasive manner. For example, by calculating what's known as a fibrosis four score. This calculation factors in age, AST, ALT, and platelet count. A similar non-invasive screening tool is the NAFLD fibrosis score calculator, which uses the same variables plus the patient's body mass index and serum albumin concentration. 
From here, there are algorithmic guidelines that use risk stratification based on that fibrosis score to guide management. The scoring and stratification will identify patients at low risk, indeterminate risk, and high risk for advanced fibrosis. For all risk groups, lifestyle intervention is recommended, including weight loss, dietary changes, and aerobic exercise. The more weight loss, the better. At a minimum, 5% total body weight reduction is recommended, but there is a linear correlation, and weight loss closer to 10 to 15% is associated with much better outcomes. And in fact, this should be the therapeutic target. But to achieve this amount of weight reduction, structured weight loss programs, anti-obesity medications, and even bariatric surgery may be necessary. Pharmacological intervention should initially focus on risk factor management particularly glycemic control and treatment of dyslipidemia and hypertension. For patients with diabetes, use of pioglitazone, GLP-1 agonists, or SGLT2 inhibitors is recommended as these medications have the added benefit, at least in patients with NASH, of decreasing the severity of both NASH and fibrosis. Currently, none of these are FDA-approved to treat NAFLD or NASH, although several Phase three clinical trials are underway. There are also a handful of other agents in the research pipeline with novel mechanisms of action. So, Scott, let's talk about the study that you reviewed in your commentary. The study is entitled A Randomized Control Trial of the Panpar Agonist Lanifibrinor in NASH, and it appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, as I said, back in October of 2021. And we provide a link to the paper on the iFormerX website. And of course, I encourage everyone to read the original research report. But Scott, can you give us a brief synopsis of the study methods and its key findings? Sure. So first of all, why did they use lanifibrinor? Well, lanifibrinor is a PPAR agonist. PPAR stands for Peroxisome Proliferator Activated Receptor. This is a receptor on the hepatocyte nuclear membrane plays an important role in metabolic regulation and homeostasis, specifically glucose and lipid metabolism, not to mention abdominal adiposity and a whole host of other metabolic functions, depending on the receptor subtype, of which there are three, alpha, beta, and gamma. For example, fibric acid derivatives and omega-3 fatty acids are agonists of PPAR-alpha. The thiazolidine diones, such as pioglitazone, are PPAR-gamma agonists. The investigational agent lanifibrinor is unique in that it's an effective agonist of all three receptor isoforms, so it's referred to as a pan-PPAR agonist. In this study, the authors evaluated the use of lanifibrinor to treat highly active NASH in non-serotic adults. The primary endpoint was a decrease of at least two points in the activity component of the SAF score, which is the steatosis activity fibrosis score. They also looked at resolution of NASH and regression of fibrosis, both separately and as a composite outcome. They enrolled 247 subjects who were randomized to receive either lanifibrinor 1,200 milligrams daily, 800 milligrams daily, or placebo for 24 weeks. And what they found was that the patients in the lanifibrinor 1,200 milligram group were significantly more likely to achieve the primary endpoint versus placebo. This group also experienced significantly more improvement in all secondary and exploratory endpoints compared to placebo. For most outcomes, though, there was no difference between placebo and the lanifibrinor 800 milligram group. A subgroup analysis of patients with stage 2 or 3 fibrosis also showed a clear benefit for lanifibrinor 1200 milligrams daily. 
Another key finding was that patients in the lanifibrinor 1200 milligram group were significantly more likely to achieve the composite endpoint of both resolution of NASH and an improvement in fibrosis stage of greater than or equal to one. The lanifibrinor was very well tolerated. Adverse events were uncommon and similar across all groups. Nausea, diarrhea, peripheral edema, anemia, and weight gain were the most common reasons for discontinuation. Well, Scott, this is a classic phase 2B drug trial sponsored by a pharmaceutical manufacturer with the intent of using this data to design a phase 3 study and then, if all goes well, obtaining FDA approval for this drug for the treatment of NASH. It's randomized, it's placebo-controlled, and measures a series of surrogate markers for liver disease that can give us some indication that lenafibrinor might be effective. However, small phase two studies like this one are more prone to confounders and their results often give us a more favorable impression of the efficacy or safety of the drug than we might see in a phase three or in clinical practice. So with those caveats in mind, what do you view as the strengths and weaknesses of the study? And when compared to previous studies, is there anything about lanifibrinor that piques your interest and leave you with a more favorable impression about the potential for this drug to become the first pharmacological treatment to actually be approved for the treatment of NASH? That's correct, Stuart. Whereas phase 2b clinical trials are dose-ranging studies of safety and efficacy, phase 3 trials have larger sample sizes and longer durations and are, of course, required for FDA approval. It's also important to note that the results of phase 2b trials are used to calculate power and sample size needed for the phase 3 trials. So yes, a phase 3 trial of lanifibrinor could have somewhat different results, and we really need to wait and see before jumping to conclusions. However, the findings from the current study do look very promising, and indeed, it was a well-designed clinical trial. A particular merit is that the authors use the same endpoints required by the FDA for approval of medications to treat NASH. However, these were secondary endpoints in this trial, so hence the need for a properly powered larger phase three trial evaluating these outcomes as primary endpoints. Also, their subgroup analysis of patients with stage two and three fibrosis is very interesting, mainly because this is the target population for approval. And in this study, lanifibrinor 1200 milligrams daily showed a clear benefit. Another strength was that they used multiple endpoints, including histology, biomarkers, and measurements of liver stiffness. I believe this is important because the definition of treatment efficacy from a clinical standpoint is evolving and may soon include a combination of tests rather than just a single marker. In terms of limitations, a criticism of the design has been that it only employed the use of a single pathologist to read the biopsies. There is quite a bit of inter-rater variability when it comes to biopsy sample evaluation. So perhaps a team of pathologists and a process to garner consensus should have been considered. So Scott, this drug isn't yet approved and, and so it's not available. What do you think are the prospects that this drug will eventually get approved? And what outcomes from the phase three studies should we be looking for that would make the compelling case that it should be approved and, and we should be using it in practice? Well, like I mentioned earlier, this study was not powered to properly evaluate the FDA-required endpoints to gain approval for the treatment of NASH, but that's what the phase three studies are for. 
I think Lanafibrinor has a very good chance of eventually receiving approval, assuming that there are no surprises awaiting in a larger sample size, such as rare but serious adverse effects. The pharmacology, mechanism of action, and these study results thus far are everything a clinician could hope for. As far as compelling outcomes for phase three studies, well, that's easy as the FDA provides very specific guidance on this. They want to see significant improvement in histology-based surrogate endpoints, specifically resolution of steatohepatitis without worsening of fibrosis or improvement in fibrosis stage without worsening of steatohepatitis or both resolution of steatohepatitis and improvement in fibrosis as a composite. Any of these will suffice and likely open the door to FDA approval. That being said, Stuart, these are surrogate endpoints. And what, of course, all clinicians would really like to see are the, the clinically meaningful endpoints, things like uh, morbidity, mortality, hospitalizations, need for transplant, uh, things along those lines. So let's talk about what we can do today to care for patients. I think there are several ways we can prevent and treat NASH today. What are some of the key things ambulatory care practitioners can do now to reduce the likelihood that their patients will develop NASH or require transplantations or develop hepatocarcinoma? Indeed, as much as we would all like to see an FDA-approved option, there sure are a number of things we can do for our patients today. And I think this starts with awareness. Despite the estimated high prevalence, most patients have never even heard of fatty liver, let alone NASH. Educating providers is also paramount. This has to come first before effective screening efforts can happen. That being said, identifying patients at risk is critical, particularly those at risk for clinically significant fibrosis. Hepatic fibrosis is the most important determinant of liver and non-liver outcomes in patients with NAFLD. Once identified, targeted efforts can be made at preventing disease progression. Lifestyle interventions and, for the more severe cases, pharmacological interventions can significantly improve histology and biomarkers, which should translate into less morbidity or mortality, and again, hopefully, less need for transplant and hospitalizations. To this end, ambulatory practitioners should familiarize themselves with the latest guidelines for screening and management of NAFLD and NASH. The non-invasive screening tools, such as the Fibrosis 4 score I mentioned earlier, are very easy to use, and there are even online calculators. For patients at risk, weight loss is a must. It's still the gold standard of therapy. Easier said than done, right? I think we all know the challenges here, but there's no way around it, unfortunately. Thankfully, there are a number of resources we have, like I mentioned earlier, structured weight loss programs, anti-obesity medications, and bariatric surgery. Also, I cannot stress enough the importance of managing the other metabolic risk factors, particularly hyperglycemia, dyslipidemia, and hypertension. Fortunately, the therapeutic targets for these parameters for patients with NAFLD and NASH are the same as in their respective disease state guidelines. Just keep in mind that there are certain medications for diabetes that are preferred for glycemic control in patients with NASH because these drugs are associated with steatohepatitis and fibrosis regression, these being, again, the thiazolidinediones and the GLP-1 agonists, and in some cases, SGLT2 inhibitors. Beyond risk factor management, we have a limited armamentarium. It's encouraging to know that there are a handful of novel medications in the research and development pipeline, many of which are already in phase three clinical trials. 
we can expect to see the results of at least some of these trials within the next two to five years. Some experts are saying we are on the verge of a fatty liver epidemic. So for ambulatory care practitioners and the patients we serve, new safe and effective options really cannot come soon enough. Well, Scott, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the iFormerX podcast today and talking with us about fatty liver disease and the potential for new treatments for NASH. Curious for those in our audience, do you screen for NASH in your practice? If so, tell us how you approach it and what you do when caring for these patients. Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on our website. So be sure to sign in every time you visit our website. And if you're interested in earning board recertification and continuing education credit for reading the commentary and listening to this podcast, be sure to check out the American Pharmacists Association's Ambulatory Care Board Prep and Recertification Program. Just click on that link that's below the written commentary on our website to learn more about APHA's evidence-based practice literature evaluation series. It's available online, on demand, anytime anywhere. Lastly, I want to extend a big thank you to Chris Bradbury, who is Dean Emeritus of Creighton University School of Pharmacy and Health Professions. Dr. Bradbury was an ambulatory care pharmacy pioneer and a leader in our profession, still is. Although he's now retired and hasn't practiced for several years, Chris has been super supportive of iFormerX behind the scenes through his generous financial gifts each year. Indeed, Chris remains an active supporter and cheerleader for many, many, many pharmacists around the globe. So thank you, Chris. It's been an honor to know you, and I want to acknowledge the positive impact that you've had on my life. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be safe, my friends. Mm-hmm.